From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. And you are about to hear Dr. Catherine Meeks, Executive Director of the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing, reading from her book, The Night is Long, But Light Comes in the Morning. Dr. Meeks? Meditation 32. Can we have a word? Victims want to be heard. We were really just trying to live our lives, and we're wondering if we could ask you, a person who is white, a question. What part of the privilege that comes from having white skin are you willing to give up so that people in black and brown skin can just live without the kind of violence that took our lives? We realize that many of you are sad and very sorry that we were killed. Some of you are going out to march in the streets. Others are resorting to violence, which is unfortunate because we do not think that will help the situation at all. Some of you are hosting vigils. You bring flowers to the places where we were murdered. You are outraged as you should be, but you see we are gone and we're not coming back. Was there anything you could have done about the way you have chosen to travel through the world as a white person that could have helped to create a different world, a world where it would be inconceivable that a white person in a uniform could practice violence against folks in black and brown bodies without having to worry very much about the consequences for them. How do you resist white supremacy? Is it only when a few of us get murdered in plain sight? How does white supremacy serve you? What parts of it are you ready to let go? What will that mean for you? What do you have to change? Are you willing and ready to make that change? We want to know. We have paid the ultimate price for the world that was made for you because for some reason, we were sent into the world with black skin instead of white skin. So we think that we can ask you hard questions. What part of your white skin privilege are you willing to give up so that we can have a world that does not hate black and brown bodies so much. Once you know the answer to that question, please do it. And then light a candle for yourself in the hope that the light will grow larger and help you see what you need to do next. Let our deaths not be in vain. George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor. Dr. Catherine Meeks, Executive Director of the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing in Atlanta, reading from her book, The Night is Long, But Light Comes in the Morning, Meditations for Racial Healing. Dr. Meeks is a retired distinguished professor of sociocultural studies at Wesleyan College. She is the author of six books, and she is joining us today from Atlanta. Dr. Catherine Meeks, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you today. It's so good to have you with us. The questions that you raise in that particular meditation uh, put directly to white people, asking them how do they resist white supremacy and what parts of the privilege of white supremacy are they willing to give up? 
those are some pointed questions. And there are a lot of white uh, so-called allies who will say, but I do resist white supremacy. And in your book, so much of your book is, is about asking people, black, brown, and white, to go deeply within and look at those parts of themselves that they haven't been willing to look at before. Can you give us an example of a way a well-intentioned white person might be upholding white supremacy? Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, it because it's, it's so insidious. And and so no matter, you know, we're, we were caught here in these all these contradictions, as a matter of fact. So uh, just in uh, the all of the structures in our society, the economy, the political structures, everything is based upon a white supremacist paradigm. And so to whatever extent you find yourself supporting those systems, you are supporting white supremacy, regardless of how good the intentions are in your heart. It's sort of like capitalism. We're all in it, no matter how, what we think about it. We can resist, 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 but at the end of the day, we're still capitalist and we still have to hold those the, the dissonance. So I have lovely, wonderful white friends that know full well their white skin still gives them an edge over me. And there's nothing we can do about that. We live in that reality. And I think that the most uh, powerful way to resist is to stay conscious, to own it, to don't, you know, to, to try to deny it and say it's not true only makes it worse. So if, so when white people say, I don't have any privilege or my skin, my white skin doesn't matter, I'm in the same boat as you, that's not true. And so, if, and that just supports the supremacist paradigm. It, the supremacist paradigm is injured more by the acknowledgement that, you're, that, you, that it's yours, but you choose not to live in it without, a, without consciousness. You choose to name it, you know, that that to me is like instead of denying the privilege, you use the privilege to stand against the oppression. And I do want to say uh, the reason that we're talking today is because you are coming to Wilmington, the first annual Jazz and Race Symposium featuring Dr. Catherine Meeks and also musician and priest Skip Walker is Saturday, September 16th, 2023 at St. James Episcopal Church in Wilmington. Dr. Meeks, in, in the meditation facing our wounds, you open with the statement, one of the greatest challenges in trying to find the best paths to racial healing is the difficulty that all of us, black, white, or brown, have in facing the wounds that racism has inflicted upon us. And this sounds almost like mm -hmm. part of one of those paradoxes that you were talking mm -hmm. about. Uh, I should say seeming paradox, because it isn't mm -hmm. actually when you dive deeply into it. But what I think it's easy for a lot of us to see the wounds that black and brown people have sustained as a result of white supremacy, both historically and today. What what wounds have white people sustained that you've, you think they're less willing to look at? You know, Rachel, 
thank you for that question because so many white people assume they have no wounds from racism. In my work, when I ask white people to name how they've been wounded, that is the greatest silence in the day because it's like, well, I, I don't have any, but you, you know, just being raised in a, in a, in a world where the narrative is that your skin is better than somebody else's skin, no matter how that message has been characterized for you, it's a disservice, it's a disadvantage. It makes you not see the value in things that are different from you as, as the things that, that look like you, that, that mirror you. And black people and brown people talk all the time about white people, good, well-meaning white people who just without even knowing it, always act as if they're just a little bit better. They just know a little bit better way to do it. You know, I mean, well, I mean, that is part of what we talk a lot about in terms, particularly in terms of sh sharing power, you know, that the black person that did it, but you can fix it a little better. That isn't, that is a, oh, it almost, it's not quite a microaggression, but it almost is. Yeah. You know, that, that you can say it a little better. You can make it a little better. It can't be quite good enough because it doesn't have a white stamp. That's, that's. And for the white people to not even recognize that is a wound and a disadvantage because it leaves you thinking that that you're in the room with all these people and you're just a little bit better than they are somehow. And But you're not because everybody is equal in the eyesight of the good creator of the universe. And so you, that's a disadvantage from which to work. And when you discover that's not true, it can be very destabilizing for yeah. white people. And and that's what we see right now happening in our country. So many white people coming to terms with the, the, that narrative that they thought was true about being a little bit better and, and, and that the world belongs to them and everything is here for their use and whatever, and the rest of us just need to do the best we can, and they're coming to grips with, none of that's true. You know, that Black and brown people own stuff here too, and we're standing up saying, yeah, we're going to have our share of the world, just like everybody else. And it's, and it's distressful. I have had so many white men say to me, they don't know what to do now because things are changing so much. They don't know how to look at themselves. But that's because they looked at themselves as being superior and in charge and able to control. And now all of those, and that's wounding to your to you that you didn't even know you had because you thought that your narrative was true. And now you're finding out that that is you need to enlarge that narrative at the very at the very least. And basically, it's just not true. But you certainly need to see yourself. You need to see yourself in relationship to other people who are just as good as you, just as smart, just as capable, who happen to live in black bodies or brown bodies. And it's and it's look at the disruption that it's causing in our culture for that to be happening. You're listening to Coastline. Dr. Catherine Meeks is a teacher of racial racial healing. She's also the author 
of a collection of meditations on racial healing called The Night is Long But Light Comes in the Morning. After this short break, we'll have much more with Dr. Meek. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Dr. Catherine Meeks is executive director of the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing in Atlanta. She's written six books, edited one, and she travels regularly around the country to lead workshops on racial healing. The first annual Jazz and Race Symposium featuring Dr. Catherine Meeks and musician and priest Skip Walker is Saturday, September 16th, 2023 at St. James Episcopal Church in Wilmington. Dr. Meeks, before we went to break, we were talking about, you were explaining this disruption that's going on in circles where white supremacy has long been a sort of inauthentic, I'm using that word, source of power. And you, you spend a lot of time in the in the early part of your book talking about the shadow parts of the self. And you talk about being influenced by Dr. Carl Jung. And in your very first essay, Meditation One, called Searching for Inner Truth, you say that, especially in the United States, we place far more emphasis on looking outward and trying to fix Mm -hmm. external sources of conflict. We have this idea we shouldn't waste time navel-gazing because it isn't productive. We believe productivity and endless activity are the best paths in order to live a full life. But, you say, this couldn't be further from the truth. So much of racial healing is about confronting our shadow selves. But what about the people that I see that are openly engaging in white supremacist work? I want to go out there and dismantle all of that, disrupt it. Is that, what do I need to address first, though? Why is the inner so important? You know, if if you're not careful, you will be projecting your own stuff onto other people, even if you're trying to be conscious, and then you end up trying to fix yourself by fixing something external to yourself, rather than really confronting. You know, I I live with a little girl inside myself who's always afraid she's going to be thrown away because that was the message from for me as a little girl growing up in Arkansas. There's no place for you here. So I need to always know that. So when I'm out trying to do good, I need to be careful how I'm trying to fix things and particularly when it comes to individuals. So I I encourage white people, I encourage everybody, but white people who are engaging in this work to be very careful to pay attention to what you're really after. You know, so yes, that we do need to fix the externals. We do need to dismantle the systems. But are you doing that in in um, as a substitute for dismantling the stuff inside yourself? Like I had a I had a white woman be more honest to me in a meeting than I think I've heard in a long time. I talked about the necessity 
to burn down oppression's house. So we could start with at ground zero with let's not have oppression here. And she said back to me, I'm afraid that if I burn down oppression's house, I'll burn my own house down. Because of you're you're so intertwined with the 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 narrative that you have that to go back to the white supremacist narrative narrative, this world belongs to you. And if I'm saying this world needs to be burnt down, then that your world's gotta go and you've got to be open to the creation of a new world. And 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 that's inner work we're talking about now, because I'm not literally, I'm not talking about literally literally going around burning down things. But if you if you burn down the external stuff out here and internally you're holding on to all of it, I don't want change, but I'm gonna go out here and work for change. You gotta be willing to be changed yourself by the work you're engaging. And I think people run from that. It's hard to do. I mean, I mean, we all want things to be different. We just don't wanna have to change to get there. I get it. But the truth is change comes when we change, when we are ready to accept a different way to be. So I get the fear, I get the fear part, but you, but we have to keep interrogating ourselves. And I don't think that enough activists interrogate themselves across the board of any color. And I think that white people are good, well-meaning white people that want to make a difference can hide so much behind. They want to make a difference and they're out here doing all this and and yet in, inside of themselves, they're not doing the work. And then it'll catch up with you after a while. And you burn out too after a while. That's the other thing. So doing the work of interrogating oneself, you're refilling the reservoir in a way. You're feeding the fire. Right. So, and opening up real energy, energetic possibilities that the work is being fueled at a at a at the ground level of your own soul in a way that's way different when you're just going out doing it because you feel guilty or it ought, you ought to or all these things. You're going because you are compelled because your soul won't let you do anything else other than that. That is a completely different stance from I'm going because, 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 because my, somebody said I should, or I feel guilty, or, you know, I'm scared or whatever. I'm going because I know the world needs to be impacted by this new energy, this new stuff that I'm discovering inside of myself. It, it also guards against burnout because you're not, you're not out here in the world looking for reinforcement. You're bringing your energy with you. And my, one of my most important mentors is Dr. Howard Thurman, and he talks about this, the getting to the core of yourself and knowing who lives there. Because if you don't do that, you're just always going to be living somebody else's story anyway. And you can't do that very successfully. Too many people are trying to do that. And so racial and that's, healing. That's a problem. Racial healing would be an outcome of personal and individual healing. Like the more people you're saying who are willing to embark on healing themselves, yes, the, the easier that, it's going to be. And that, that's really hard, Rachel, for people to buy because people want to say, 
I mean, black people sometimes get uh, uh, aggravated at me because I make such a to-do out of that. But racial healing is a part of overall healing, about becoming a better human being, about knowing more about yourself, because then you don't have to look at me and be so worried about the difference because you faced all these little uh, different energies running around inside of yourself and you've sort of got a clear sense of who you are and where you stand. So you don't have to be that impacted by whatever is external to you. Howard Thurman said he had to learn to guard his internal self from the externals because they were so brutal. And, and he would be done in as a black man in America if he couldn't figure that out. So then you don't have to be so frightened by the winds that are blowing because you know you're not gonna be blown away. They're, they're, so you are a more healed person around race, around gender, around class, around age, around uh, whatever is coming toward you. It's not so scary because you don't you you're not defined by those things. You know, you could live in a cabin or in a mansion and be OK because you brought yourself with you. Yeah. And it wasn't the circumstances that created you. You brought yourself with you. That is that is the essence of healing, and and if and when we're doing that, race gets better because we are engaging all difference better. And I just long to see people get to that place because it's so liberating, and and makes it possible to think about us living better together as human beings that we're here put here to live together. I mean, we do have to figure this out. Yes. You give a, a really clear example in your book, The Night is Long, But Light Comes in the Morning, of uh, a shadow part of the self. You, it's, you tell a story of an African-American man experiencing his shadow self in the gym. He, he goes into the locker room. There are two white men there. He greets the first one. Guy doesn't say anything. He says something to the second man. No reply. He changes. He goes to work out with his partner, tells him about the guys in the in the locker room, says he thinks they didn't speak to him because he is a person of color. His workout partner tells him, uh, no, actually, they're they're both deaf. Mm -hmm. How how is this an example of the man's shadow self? What shadow is revealed here? So, so the projection, the, 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 the part of him that says white people aren't going to be accepting of me. And we, and we, 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 as people, we of people of color live in that real, in that place every day. When I walk out the door, I've got to live with, I'm a black woman walking out the door. And when I go do this, 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 and this, I'm a black woman doing this. And so I've got my little antenna up. Now, am I gonna be treated like a human being? I'm gonna be respected. You don't, you know, you're not, you're not that conscious of all of it. It's just kind of like the second tier, third tier consciousness. Du Bois calls it double consciousness. It's double, triple, quadruple consciousness, really. So you live in that space and that's part of your shadow stuff. And you have to decide how to modulate that. Are you gonna go be super sensitive? Are you gonna just let some stuff go? How are you gonna navigate your way through the day? 
every interaction you get to decide how you're going to process it the and and you process it with consciousness or unconsciousness and unconsciously my friend was saying white people don't probably even like it that i'm here living in this high rise with them and having access to the same resources i mean that's all the all those possibilities are there so as soon as somebody white doesn't speak to you they verify some of that stuff that's already running around inside of you but you don't know why they didn't speak to you you just make up the story now because these are the possibilities they don't like it my being here they probably didn't want me here in the first place all of that is made up because you didn't you didn't uh, interrogate everybody in the building, so you don't know how they really feel. But you draw the conclusion that I'm not wanted. That's why you're not speaking, because you don't like me. You don't like my presence here. Before finding out the real reason is the man didn't hear you because he can't hear. Yeah. You know, and we do that a thousand times a day. We say what somebody thought. We react to people on the basis of, what's inside of us and got, we don't have a clue why that thing really happened. But it, but our, our explanation, it grows out of what's in us. And when you start realizing and accepting that that's what you're doing, I don't have a clue what you really think. I just have a clue what I think about what you just said or did. And, and if I really wanna know, I need to ask you. And if it's important enough, I should deal with it. And if it's not, you just let it go. So in a day, you let a lot of stuff go, a lot of stuff you don't let go. And some of it rises to the level of microaggression. In the case of my friend, if he had not spoken to his workout partner, he would have spent the rest of his life thinking those guys were bigots. Yeah. And, and those men just are deaf. They, they may in fact be bigots, but he doesn't have any information to verify that. He just knows he said hello and they didn't say hello back. Think about how many times in a day something happens and we make a characterization and an evaluation analysis, and then we base our behavior on the basis of all of that. And every bit of it is made up. It came out of us and, and we have we are operating on no fact whatsoever, except this is how I feel about it. And I want to get to the the difference between like, when you do establish that a slight or a microaggression or mm-hmm. something far worse is real. But first, I want to ask you about the difference between racial healing and racial reconciliation because as i understand mm-hmm. it you're not a fan of the term or the concept no. racial reconciliation why because i don't think there's anything to be reconciled you know we we black and white particularly between black and white and also native indigenous the indigenous people there were no relationships in slavery or the genocide that was practiced against the indigenous people those were transactional things that happened with between white folks and those people. And I mean, a, a, a slave master has no relationship with a slave. You, you have, you transact stuff, you know, you're, you, you can't trans, you can't have a relationship with somebody that you don't see as an equal human being. You can have transactions with them 
interactions with them, a whole bunch of things. But a real relationship of respect it has to come out of, I see you as an equal person to me. So we didn't have that as as in this country yet. And so that we have nothing to reconcile. That makes I sense. think if I think if we get if we do the healing work, we have a chance to build that kind of relationship. And those are the relationships that I want to build. I want to foster, but I don't want to play a game about that they used to be and we lost it and now we just need to get back to it. No, we didn't. We never had it. And and we need to own that. So this idea then of um my shadow self telling me something that makes me smaller or makes me uh, causes me to make decisions based on a fiction in my imagination mm-hmm. versus actual transgressions and wounds. I mean, you talked about the little girl that lives inside of you that is mm-hmm. always afraid of being thrown away. Your brother died as a child because the closest hospital wouldn't treat him for a ruptured mm-hmm. appendix because he was black. You you talk about mm-hmm. your father's broken heart and joining him in that space. But, but first of all, how do we know the difference between real wounding mm-hmm. and things that we're just making up and doing to ourselves because we mm-hmm. haven't uh, we haven't looked at our shadow selves? So the, the so I can talk about how this plays out for me with my little inner child. My inner child has to understand now that I'm a 77 year old woman with three degrees and eight books under my belt and uh, public radio interview capacity. Therefore, I have a place. I have a place to stand. That is a reality. And the little girl who's scared needs me to be the mother who says, I understand you're scared, but but you don't get to rule here because that that fear is not founded, is not well founded anymore. That is how you come to terms with the the wounds versus reality and the shadow. If you if I didn't know that little girl and have those conversations with her, I could run around still being on an ego trip, being afraid of everybody being a a bully, a a lot of different kinds of things because I wasn't paying attention to what is that? What is at the core of me that makes me need to do that? You know, you know people like that. Nothing is ever enough for them. They've got all kinds of stuff and and it's like they don't have a thing because they haven't confronted where where their real sense of destabilization lies. And so when I start getting antsy about, is this person really true do they can i trust them i need to come back to to myself and say now what is going on here you know you're constantly needing to check in with yourself and 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 find out is this did somebody really do something here that should make me suspicious or am i just being suspicious because there's a tendency to be suspicious because i don't trust enough and some days it's real and and I don't need to trust you because you're not trustworthy. And then other times it's just me with letting my little child run wild and I need to get that little girl to come back and sit down and say, it's okay, I'm, I've got this. 
but you see, that takes a lot of work and a lot of paying attention. You're listening to Coastline. Dr. Catherine Meeks of the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing is my guest today. After this short break, the difference between brokenness and brokenheartedness and how both can contribute to racial healing. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Dr. Catherine Meeks, Executive Director of the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Healing in Atlanta, has written six books, edited one, and in her talks on racial healing, she draws a link between individual healing and the broader racial healing. Influenced deeply by Carl Jung, among others, she asks people to look at the disowned, unacknowledged, or shadow parts of themselves to advance their own healing. The first annual Jazz and Race Symposium featuring Dr. Catherine Meeks and musician and priest Skip Walker is Saturday, September 16th, 2023, at St. James Episcopal Church in Wilmington. Dr. Meeks, We've been talking so much about how important the inner work is before we can expect to see authentic change in the outer world. But we're seeing so much disruption going on now. You even talk about white rage a lot in your book, The Night is Long But Light Comes in the Morning. How do we navigate that balance? Is there a balance between the inner And the outer, can we get too much into navel-gazing and forget that outward action is needed? I think I'd love to see people err on the side of too much navel-gazing, because I think right now we've got too much running around like headless little chickens trying to put Band-Aids on cancers. And it would be well for us to stop and sit down for a minute and try to figure out can we do something that can really be sustained? I I think a lot about, I'm 77 years old and I've been uh, aware of and dealing with the whole issue of race most of my life. And why is it that at 77, we're still talking about a lot of the same things we were talking about when I was 27. And I think that that is because we have approached this from, we need to go out there and tear down those structures and build some new ones. But then we tore down the outer structures without working on the things inside of ourselves that helped to put those structures there in the first place. So it's sort of like the way I think about this, it's like if you come in and and you needed, you hadn't had a bath for a, a month and you just change clothes and you don't take a shower. Mm. So yeah, you do look a little different, but, you're, but you've got a whole lot of, you should have cleaned yourself up. And, and we didn't clean up the inner cells. We didn't talk about it. We didn't, I don't know that we didn't know, maybe we didn't know, but, but we didn't do the work anyway. And so then we just recreated a lot of what was there. I mean, we, we passed Voting Rights Acts and we gave the right to vote without all those constrictions that were there. 
And now we're trying to put them back because inside people didn't come to grips with everybody has a right to vote here. And I want to be committed to everybody's right to be a free person and to do and have access to all the freedoms that belong to citizens in this country. If I think that my well-being is tied up on in you not having the same thing that I have, then I'm not going to be willing for you to have what I have. So, I, and the only way to get past that is to get clear about the my well-being not having anything to do with that, but having to do with my coming to understand myself as an authentic human being and dealing with my own brokenness and my own uh, fear and my own shadow stuff so that my sense of okayness is not tied up with somebody else not having their resources. And you say... You say that in the in the book that my right. brokenness, for example, is part of the combination of that, in addition to whatever gifts and talents I might have, the combination mm-hmm. of those things equips me to be on the path of racial healing. How does my brokenness serve racial healing? Well, for one thing, it gets you it keeps you off of a pedestal. So you don't have to think you, you know, I'm I'm not better than you. You're not better than we're fellow pilgrims. Each of us bringing our own brokenness to the trail and we can help each other. If it, And when we get pretty clear, we understand we can maybe even hold one another's hands and help us look for, as we look for bandage closets. So that's my image, the wounded healer, the Henry Nowen talking about the wounded healer, that we that we are all wounded. And that's where we started this conversation. Yeah. We're all wounded. And and so we bring our wounded selves to the table, to the to the to the process, to the pathway of wherever you want to talk about it. And we share rather than and so owning my brokenness helps me to become uh, a, a, a a fellow pilgrim rather than uh, somebody who's superior. And we love to have this hierarchy of I'm a little bit better than. We just have to struggle with that because we it seems to just come up no matter how hard we try to avoid it. But so so I say the work has to be approached with a brokenheartedness because then it keeps me from from thinking I'm better than anybody else, leaves me willing to be open to the gift of humility and healing because I can't get well if I won't own sickness, if I don't own the wounds. You know, James Baldwin says you can't heal everything you name, but you won't heal anything you don't name. And so I'm naming, I'm naming my own brokenness, my woundedness as a as a black woman and white people who are willing to do that. And I have a place to be in conversation with each other. And then we can look for healing together. And Mother Teresa, I, I think, is quoted as writing, uh, may God break my heart so completely yes. that the whole world falls in. So how do you inhabit this energy of brokenheartedness or let it inhabit you and keep your will to persevere? How do you not let it swallow you up into just despair? Well, you know, uh, Thurman says despair is like the 
one of the greatest things the activist heart has to worry about because you get caught up in, you've worked so hard and so little has been accomplished. So you, you again, it goes back to staying focused and staying faithful to your own journey so that my, my day is not determined by externals, period. Because the, the good, bad, or indifferent, that doesn't determine my understanding of myself. I've got to understand myself. Though better externals, better externals help you to feel better, but but you can't let that be the definition of your worth. I mean, you've got to be able to know if everything that is external to you, including your family, your friends, your reputation, your vocation, all of that stuff, if all of that was gone, how would who would you be is a good question to ask yourself. Yeah. So you don't get to define yourself by, I've got these good children. I've got really good sons. If my sons were gone, do I know who I am? If my job was gone, do I know who I am? If my house is gone, if I'm, in, you know, if I'm in Hawaii and my house burns down, do I know who I am then? So that's how you keep from being swallowed is finding out who you are separated from those external things. And then you go out and do everything you can to the best of your ability. And at the end of the day, you bring yourself back to your space with Thanksgiving, that you did what you did. You had the day that you had. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Some days are full of grief. Some days are full of joy. You know, uh, Gibran says, if you turn over your joy, you see your sorrow, and you turn over your sorrow, and you see your joy. So you live with the dissonance of those with what feels like contradictions and you learn that that's life and that's what keeps you from despair you know you that's life that's i mean and some days you're just in despair and you have to own it yeah you know the the way you the way you make it through the your life is to be a truth teller to yourself and to tell yourself the truth whether it's good bad or indifferent today this is what and it, just because I'm here today doesn't mean I'll be here tomorrow either, you know. So because someday, you, because every day is not a day that feels like you are winning. There are days when you feel like you're losing. And why are you even doing this? And then you know you're doing it because your soul requires you to do it. Yes, you observe that white people tend to gravitate to communities of color when they start to wake up to racism. Mm -hmm. But you say it would be more helpful for them to engage with other whites first. Mm -hmm. You note that that's much harder to do. What, why would that be more helpful? And, and why do you think that's hard for white people to do? Well, because, it, because, because running out into the, like you woke up and realized, oh my God, I've been pretty self-absorbed here and didn't see all of this. This happened with the murder of George Floyd, which is why I was really talking about it. So you want to go then, go find some people of color to do something. So that's, you're going external to yourself. You need to sit with yourself and be with yourself and get clear, first of all, about what you even are beginning to think and what you think you want to be trying to do. And then you need to try it out on the people who are closest to you. 
in the circles that you find yourself in. Because if it works in those circles, then maybe it'll work somewhere else. Otherwise, you get way off into projection and you get to make up the you get to make up a reality and trying to fix it, it get again it gets into trying to externalize stuff inside yourself and go fix it outside yourself and it's a great danger people called me up in a panic white people during George Floyd that whole in 2020 what can we do what can we do and my basic answer was nothing sit down take a deep breath stand still pay attention to what's really going on with yourself and begin self-interrogation and try to listen carefully to see what you need to be doing. I have no idea what you should be doing because I don't live in your heart and soul. What I can say to you is that your heart and soul will tell you what to do if you will pay attention. And, and to call me up to ask me what to do is like calling me up to ask me what you want for dinner when you're sitting in your kitchen and you need to go cook, you know? I mean, it really is the same kind of thing because what you need to do is know what you're called to do, what your soul won't let you refuse to do. And there's no way for me to know that, not whatsoever. I can be a support to you, I can mentor you, I can care with you. I can be a fellow pilgrim with you, but only you can find out what you're supposed to be doing. And I would just want to, and I want white people to know, and black people and brown people and any other color people, that we all have a responsibility to work as hard as we can to make the world a sustainable place. But we're not going to do that if we don't work on creating sustainability inside of ourselves. We're all familiar with Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. And I think about his speech when I think about the role that imagination can play mm. in racial healing. Mm. How do you think about imagination in all of this? Oh, I think without imagination, which for me, I talk. I guess I talk about more in terms of vision, if you have no imagination and no vision, you are a very pitiful human being. I think we have got to be imaginative and then we have got to allow ourselves to be courageous enough to act upon what we can imagine. So, and it's about vision, you know, the book of Isaiah says that people perish because they have no vision, you know, and I think we're perishing because we have no vision and we have no courage. And if we let ourselves engage in, in imagination and let, and let the energy of imagination catch on fire in us, we'll get courage because it'll make us do something. So we only have a, a less than a couple of minutes left, a, a minute and change. You mentioned we're still talking about issues that we wouldn't be talking about in a post-racial world. What does a post-racial world look like? What What is your vision for that? I think a, a world where race becomes less of an issue would be, be generated by all of us working to become people who really and truly 
know who we are and that we love who we see inside of ourselves so that then I don't have to project, I don't have to denigrate, I don't have to have a hierarchy. I can just be happy to be myself. And when we get there, I can look at you and let you be white with and look like you look and I look like I look and we acknowledge that and then we go on to find out what kind of hearts do we have and what do we care about and what makes us human together. That is the world I, I work every day to help create and that's the world I want to live in. And I do want to mention briefly, you're starting a banned books library at Absalom Jones yes. Center for Racial Healing. Tell us about yes. that. We decided that uh, one of the ways to resist that negative energy was to gather those books and give them out to people, the books that people are trying to ban. You can't get rid of ideas by simply telling folks what they can and cannot read. This is the 21st century, and we can't have that. And we've raised a little bit of money to buy books, and we're going to have a um, celebration around all of this later on in the year uh, because it's really critical. And that is this edition of Coastline. Dr. Catherine Meeks, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode, his last episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode along with links and resources and information about the symposium on September 16th, 2023 at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.